you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Myths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. think it a rather interesting thing. Some people think the Jews are the chosen people because they don't know any better. But here's what the Nybrith Messenger says this week. They said that a recent issue of the Jewish Digest discloses that we have a group of 75 Zulu-speaking Bantus who are Jews. Huh. You know, they never came from Abraham, did they? Remember that one of the things about Abraham, out of Isaac shall thy seed be called, and God says, you keep this line racially pure, they're outside the kingdom. If there's one, if there's a hundred, a hundredth part of them, and more than this, if for ten generations there's any fusion in the blood, they can't share in the administration of the kingdom. All right, I think it's rather interesting that Ibrith Messenger tells us that they've got nigger Jews because we don't have any nigger Israelites. How about that? <laughs> Say, well, doesn't God have any Negro children? No, God doesn't have a one. He has created a people that have degenerated. They, as created, all uh, people can turn and worship him as God. But he said to you, you come out from among them, be ye separate or segregated, and don't you touch the unclean thing, because I want to be a God unto you and your children after you and your generations. And they are the bodies, are the temples of idols, and your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now this is race, this is talking about the body, it's talking about you. God says, you come out and don't integrate with these Negroes because I'm a father to your race, and I'm not going to be a father to this mongrel offspring. Ho, 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 holy wowza. Okay. What's up, everybody? This is episode 114 of the Lone Gummin Podcast. This is your boy Rob Clark here with you. I got one hell of a show for you today, and I'm not even joking. I, I say that a lot, but look, this time, I mean it. I got one hell of a guest for you. His name is Keith Gilbert. He's a former Minuteman. He was a he was a he knew a lot of these radical right wing crazies uh, back in California in the '60s. He was around all kinds of stuff. Uh, I mean, he's you're going to hear about it. Trust me. me you know, he, he tells us all about it. So I'm not even going to ruin it for you. <clears throat> Um, just an amazing, amazing interview coming for you. This guy was a minute man. This guy knew Dr. Wesley Swift, who who you just heard in the opening clip. Um, he was a radical right-wing preacher. 
back then out in Hollywood. So yeah, uh, just, and I played that just just as as an example of of you know the kind of people or the kind of person that Wesley Swift was, and and what uh, my guest Keith Gilbert was surrounded by back then at the time, the sentiment uh, of some of these guys. So that's kind of where they're coming from, you know what I mean? So, but uh, but yeah, so. <laughs> I, look, there's, a, there's not going to be a ridiculousness of the week this week. There's just too much Keith Gilbert interview. It's long enough as it is. Uh, but I promise it'll be back next week. And uh, so kick back, grab a nice cold beverage, and enjoy this interview. And trust me, you're going to want to listen to every minute of this interview. You know, it's that good. So kick back. You know, I let, I let Keith go, I wound him up, and, you know, he goes, you know, he tells his story, and then uh, then I get then I ask him some questions along the way, and at the end, um, I'm going to play you something that Keith Gilbert got to actually hear it live and in person. You won't want to miss it, so stay tuned for that at the very, very, very end. And without further ado, you know, I'm going to let Keith introduce himself. So, Keith, whenever you're ready, my friend, take it away. My name is Keith Gilbert. I was born in 1939 on December the 7th um, in Arkansas, near Jonesboro, actually closer to Truman. And I'm just an old country boy. And I had a small health problem. Ended up growing up in Beverly Hills. My mom uh, moved us around a couple of times, and we we settled in Beverly Hills, and from there I went to the Army, and I came back from the Army. I went back into the motion picture industry and worked there for a while, uh, actually for several years, but doing things I enjoyed, not as an actor, but as a technician. And uh, in the process of all this, I became somewhat uh, enamored of politics and uh, paramilitary activities uh, in various parts of the world, including the United States. Uh, I had a, I opened a couple of gun stores when the motion picture industry went to uh, Spain, which was uh, about 1960 something, early 60. And uh, the businesses were, you know, okay. They didn't make a lot of money, but I had fun doing them because I happened to have a fondness for firearms. And uh, the uh, the the temperament of the time was such that you know I, I I had a business partner named Robert A Smith. He owned uh, National Distributors, and we travel around the country to a number of places. But he had been given uh, a uh, oh shall I say a non-existent contract to deliver firearms and uh, ammunition and munitions to. Cuban expatriates who were supposedly trying to you know take. Cuba back from Castro. We would drive into places like Fort Knox and have literally bird colonels loading our trucks with uh, the end lots of ammunition and you know just fire anything they could grab. Fire a lot of firearms, a lot of machine guns, a lot of uh, uh, heavy weaponry that you know you just don't get on the market today. Right. And we we didn't particularly care for uh, the Cubans and ended up hauling most of that stuff to California. Hmm. 
and selling it to right-wing radicals. In the course of all this, I met a man, I was, because of the business end of it, I met a man named Wesley Swift, who is a radical uh, uh, preacher in Hollywood. I mean, the guy was pretty crazy. He was also a pretty intelligent guy. And his following had a great you know, interest in firearms. And at about this time, I found out about the Minutemen. Right. And I, I literally joined them. This Minutemen out of Missouri with Robert uh, B. Boulevard uh, Depew. Okay. We uh, never met. Talked on the phone more than a few times. But I met his uh, one of his representatives in California. Actually, a couple of them in California. One was a fellow named uh, Dennis Patrick Maurer. Maurer is one of the few people in this whole story that's still alive. Another was a fellow named Troy Houghton. And uh, I would go to I would go to Swift's church. I'd go in the back parking lot. We'd open the trunk and sell ammunition and guns and stuff to some pretty radical individuals. One day I got a call from um, Maurer, I believe it was, that, uh, that a fellow named Clinton Wheat wanted to meet me. And I I knew who he was vaguely, but I didn't know him personally. And apparently he had some kind of deal he wanted to put forth to me. And um, so I went over to his house. I you know, called me in the point. I went over to his house. We sat and talked in his Oh, he's an older fellow. He and his wife, and they were really off into the John Birch Society thing quite heavily. They attended uh, Wesley Swift's church, uh, and Swift was an old ex-convict from Texas who had been through a lot, and he was pretty hostile toward the Kennedys and everybody else that was in that administration. He uh, he uh, told me he had a couple of people that were Cubans that wanted to talk to me about buying some guns. And uh, ammunition, and right away I'm not too interested. I, I I told him I'd meet with him, but I wasn't sure what I'd have available at the time. Although I had plenty of stuff, M14s and things like that. Yeah. He took me out to his uh, shop, which was a converted garage. This is uh, on Lafayette Street in what's called part. Of, it's part of Hollywood, but it really actually is Los Angeles, a couple of blocks from the freeway. And uh, showed me a Japanese uh, Bren gun. It's a Type 99, which uh, had been customized. You know, this wasn't unusual. These these things were had been brought in by High Hunter, quite a number of them. He had one magazine for it. It was scoped. I can't remember whether the bipod was still there with it or not. And it had been either rechambered or rebarreled. I forget which, but it had been reblued also, so it's not hard to get past that. Uh, to fire the uh, tyranny cartridge, which is the uh, is a 7.35, I believe. I could be off on my calibrations. I've never you know, been all that wild about Japanese uh, cartridges, mm-hmm. and uh, which there was a lot of, though. We had access to you know, just tons of surplus ammunition through Interarmco in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, another one of our suppliers. And, you know, you could buy 2,000 rounds of this World War II junk ammo, ammo for about... I don't know, I think it's like $17 back then. And, you know, I'd misfire every few rounds and whatnot. But with an old Jap uh, bring gun, you could go out in the desert and pop away at jackrabbits, probably not Henny, and uh, have a good time with it, you know, just, just blazing away. Yeah. And he had a misfire, just re- recock it. Well, 
he showed me this guy. He's, he's quite interested in getting another magazine for it. And then we went and just chit-chatted later. That, I believe it was, either, it was either that night or the following day, day evening, I came to his house to meet these two fellows. Now, they did not introduce themselves uh, using their real names. I don't remember the exact names they did use, but uh, Lee Harvey Oswald is pretty easy to spot in a crowd. The other guy was a guy named, turned out to be a guy named Henning. I think the name he used was Basilio when he, uh, when he introduced himself. And he did most of the talking, but Oswald, who was very intense, um, would interject certain things periodically. They told me they had this, this great plan to go in and save Cuba or attack Cuba. So they forget the details of it because it was an outright lie. Uh, they just, they, they needed some guns. They wanted them. I think they wanted a bargain price on things like M14s and stuff. I told him I'd see what I had, and I'd meet him back there the next day, which I did. And at that time, I informed them that, uh, you know, I didn't have anything that, you know, any machine guns available right at the moment. I could supply a little bit of ammunition, but probably nothing they wanted. And they got really disappointed. Couldn't They, they couldn't stress the importance of their mission enough. <laughs> and it was pretty funny. They tried to put on all the pressure they could, but... You know, I just, I really didn't give a damn about John Birch Society things. They they were a source of customers, not much beyond that. And these guys uh, clearly were not part of what I was doing. So I I ended it at that. I, I saw Clinton Wheat maybe uh, a day or two later. He invited me over, and we, we sat and talked. And he told me that I asked him, uh, I told him, he had asked me about getting a Japanese uh, bring gun uh, magazine. He only had one. And I told him I couldn't find any. They, they really weren't any, except those that came with the guns. Yeah. And he told me this out the second. He says, well, don't worry about it. I'm not worried about that gun anymore. Before he'd been really interested in the gun, suddenly it's he didn't even want to talk about the gun's existence anymore. Hmm. Personally, I think that's the gun that killed Kennedy. You know, everybody said they thought they heard the sound of the machine guns. Uh, it's not a fast-firing gun, but, you know, it breaks down into three large parts. It's it's not hard to conceal, uh, even though it's a high caliber and it is a, it is a what they call a light machine gun. It's not anything that uh, you'd really look for. If you saw it and didn't, it didn't have the magazine in it and it wasn't assembled, you might not even recognize it for being a gun. Right. The stock had been refinished a little bit, stuff like that. I didn't see Lee Harvey Oswald again until the day he shot Kennedy and they showed him uh, in the news. And I'm watching the news and they popped this guy's picture up and my heart stopped. I honestly didn't want to be any part of that event. In, in any by any stretch of the imagination, yeah, it was I, something that would come back to haunt me years and years later. Uh, well, let me ask you, let me ask you him, a question about yeah, him. go ahead <clears throat> about the guys you met there. You say the guy was using the name Pasillo. Um, there's Pasillo was the name I remember him using. I'm pretty yeah. sure that was it. Yeah. Um, well, there's there's some confusion that people wanted me to clear up. Because that is a name that, that a, a guy named Lauren Hall used to use, and people were wondering if if you could give a, a I guess a physical description of the of the guy using that. Was it a very large gentleman? Like I think Hemming was six seven. 
Uh, I mean, it was he was a big, you know, big man. You know, he might have been that big, but I don't remember that part. He had dyed, I think he had dyed his hair. I think he was actually blonde-haired. Uh, I believe he had dyed his hair black. He he was clearly trying to pretend to be a, a Cuban. Okay. And, you know, I, I just, I don't remember a lot of details about him beyond the event, because honestly, once the event was over, I didn't think anything about it until months later when Kennedy was shot. But I don't think Joswell shot Kennedy. I think it was Henning. And unfortunately, Henning died. I was, I, well, I was just not that familiar with him. I know the name Lauren Hall. I've heard it before. I, I can't remember for a certainty whether I've met him or not. It's entirely possible. The, uh, the years pass and your memory fades a little bit. I remember a lot of other things. Um, you remember, uh, and a, a Dr. Stanley Drennan? Yes, I do. I do. I've, I've met Drennan. As I recall, he was a member of Leslie Swift's church. He, I think, is the father of uh, Richard Glenn Carlborg's first wife. They had a child, and I don't know what happened to any of them after that. I think Drennan was a dentist, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It's been a long time, you understand? Yeah, I know. Um, I may have sold him some guns and stuff. Yeah, he hmm? was he was uh, he was supplying Lauren Hall and uh, and all those guys that were the, the quote Cuban Raiders with with you know guns and and supplies and everything. Yeah, back down. He was very much into the John Birch Society scene, as was a man named uh, also a friend of his, uh, John uh, Rakuza. Uh, he, the fellow owned an insurance company on Hollywood Boulevard, and he owned what's called Poor Richard's uh, Bookstore. Renuzzi, Renuzzi. I yeah. think his that first name was John. Renuzzi uh, was quite an interesting guy. He had plenty of money passed around. Ended up moving to uh, to uh, I think it was Livingston, Montana, and was living up there near a cult, one of those Mormon cults. I don't know if he was involved with them or not. They they were one of the breakaway Marian cults that started killing each other a few years ago. That was in the paper. But interesting bunch. I met a couple of them. They uh, they were off into the survivalist gun thing also. And let's see. Then you know, in the operation of the uh, uh, I, uh, my gun store, I heard the Kennedy been shot literally minutes after it happened on the radio. And uh, one of the people that uh, that Dennis Patrick Maurer killed is a guy named. Uh, Joseph Ray Carey, him and a girl named, uh, oh, geez, Lynn LeRae, were fugitives living with Dennis Maurer. And my gun store was kind of failing. I had too many other distractions at this point. And I, I gave my interest to uh, a guy named Robert Rain Romero. He was, I don't know what ever happened to him. He was the son of a, of a movie studio uh, uh, Makeup man by the name of Romero, quite well known at the time, but I, you know, I don't know what happened anyhow. But he was also big into guns and had a good gun collection. Kept getting caught with machine guns, which <laughs> I found was kind of strange. But anyway, uh, a lot of activities were happening in Los Angeles at that time. You know, we had rumors that uh, that white nationalists or whatever they were were training for guerrilla warfare in the Griffith Park area. So we went in at night with machine guns looking for them. 
we took patrols through Griffith Park on just unexpected nights and would would literally go on patrol. Almost got caught by the cops once, but they couldn't see through our camouflage. And uh, it was just sort of a training effort for other members of the Minutemen that were in my team. Uh, one of the members, uh, uh, friends, uh, the, the guy's name was, uh, oh, God, Clyde Young had a couple of cousins or friends, I forget which, and they got intrigued by it all and decided that we needed some explosives, and they went out and robbed a powder magazine. Now, robbing a powder magazine is not is no mean thing, but this powder is an explosive magazine in Silmar for construction people and mining and stuff. And they brought 1,400 pounds of explosives to my house in the middle of the night. And... I mean, honest to God, I just about shit my pants. The last thing in the world I needed was for. I lived in a small uh, studio apartment attached to a Los Angeles police department's uh, police officer's house, and his uh, his sister was, you know, she was a friend of mine and very supportive and all that. But the last thing we needed was that. But I couldn't let these guys drive away with all this explosive material. It was just too dangerous. I know explosives. I knew. It, you know, how to use them, how to make stuff with them, everything else, how to train people to use them, how to build atomic bomb simulators, all those things you do in the military when you're into ordnance and such. So I rather stupidly let them unload the stuff at my house and told them I'd give them some money later. As soon as they were gone, I locked the house up and left everything I owned in it and got as far away from it as I could and proceeded to Go over to Dennis Bauer's house. I told him, I, at that time, I had reason to trust him. I told him what had been going on. Uh, I'd also seen this fugitive Carrie's, uh, girlfriend over at his house. And so I pretty much knew he was, uh, he was harboring a fugitive. Yeah. And he, he suddenly had this notion that he wanted to use this material to go blow up. I think it was, it was the, the, the Hollywood Bowl. They were having a Martin Luther King uh, event there or something like that. Right. And uh, it was going to be predominantly a Jewish crowd. And he wanted to go there and set those explosives off oh. and kill kill King as many of them as he could. I mean, it was something that the men, men had been very dear to. They claimed support from J. Edgar Hoover in the matter. Right. And that came in later. I mean, it may be true. I don't know. J. Edgar Hoover's kind of a weird guy, but uh, he certainly didn't get his hands dirty. Anyway, um, it scared the living shit out of me. What he wanted to do, I, and I decided. I took it. I got away from it. Made a decision. The best thing I could do would be put as much heat on that explosive material as I possibly could, and on the on the Hollywood Bowl. I made a phone call to the, uh, to the, uh, oh, we'd also discussed blowing up the Muslim mosque, uh, or not, not the Muslim mosque, the Muslim, uh, speaker, the guy's dead now, um, was supposedly in town. Malcolm X? Black Muslim. Malcolm X, yeah, I couldn't think of his name. Thank okay. you. Uh, blowing him up. I called the newspapers with anonymous, uh, phone calls and told them that, uh, these explosives were going to be used to blow up, um, the Palladium, the, I mean, the, the Hollywood Bowl the, the, with Martin Luther King speaking there. In effect, stopping it from happening because suddenly there was so much heat on the thing. And I think Maurer made a call. Now that I think about it, about the, about the, 
Malcolm X thing. Less interest there, but I, I know I made at least one call about Malcolm X, supposedly to get the heat off of the uh, where the explosives were going to use. That done, I got out of town. I, I had uh, um, Richard Glenn Carlborg, the, the son-in-law of the man we talked about earlier, drive me to Fresno, and he gave me a piece of his ID, uh, which I think is a social security card, and I got on a bus to uh, San Francisco, and there I got on another bus to Portland, Oregon. I think I may have stopped in another city. Got a, each place I got a new ticket. Right. And then I, when I got to Seattle, I got on a bus to uh, Vancouver, Canada, and became an international fugitive. And they stopped me. They stopped the bus. They asked everybody what they were doing there. Wanted to know why I didn't have a driver's license. And I told them, well, I'm epileptic and I can't drive. And I'm just up here to walk around and see the city because I haven't been here before, which is basically true. And they passed me on through. I had, you know, several hundred dollars in my pocket and uh, enough to get by and get started. And I was in a few, yeah, I was a fugitive there. I got a job, got a job uh, working, uh, for an old Dutch painter painting houses, and you know he was kind of a crazy old kid, guy that had been the uh, of all things uh, the Dutch uh, Hitler Youth Movement back in World War II. And his parents had put him on a boat or a ship or something to Canada just as soon as the war uh, ended because they they didn't want him to get hurt. Right. He was a little bit crazy, smart guy, had a big fat like nine kids and a wife and whatnot. And I met him through an organization called the, uh, uh, no, I take it back. I, I met David Stanley, who's since disappeared. He was a bit of a radical in Vancouver and then suddenly decided to see the light one day. And he introduced me to, to uh, Eric Pelican was this guy's name. And I worked for him for, well, I don't know, three or four months. Ended up one day. Oh, and the British Israel Association—that was the outfit that was uh, supporting. They were involved with, with uh, Wesley Swift. And I just—I'd approached them on a, on a lark because I didn't know anybody in Vancouver. I had to become an instant Van uh, Canadian citizen. So, and I spent my first month in the library and stuff, figuring out how to talk, sound, look, and be like a Canadian farm boy that just came to town. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was in contact with Dennis Bauer during this period of time. I had talked to him every couple of weeks or so, just trying to see what was going on. At one point, I offered to let, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, <coughs> Joseph Ray Carey come to Canada and join me. At one point, he was really excited, thought it was a great idea. The next time I talked about it, him, he got all excited. He said, don't ever mention their names again. He says, uh, just don't do it. He's real paranoid. And I learned later why. I had no idea at the time that he had literally murdered her and uh, him and the girl he was with. Hid the body. They've never found the body. She's never been charged with anything. But he and uh, oh, this other guy, uh, Troy Houghton, have been accused by some of being the Zodiac killers in California. It's maybe possible because Dennis was really in fact a real true psychopath as far as I can tell, looking back on it. Yeah. And uh shortly after that, uh the Mali the Royal Canadian Mountain Police came to the British Israel place looking for me. 
they uh, asked for me by the three names on the on the on the ID that I had. And of course, it was a dead giveaway because I never told anybody that uh, that I was using the, the the middle name of Glenn. It was just Richard Carlberg. And so I literally the phone call came in to them. They they said, "Oh, uh, Richard, there's a phone call here for you from uh, somebody." I said, "Well, who did they ask for?" And they said, "Richard Glenn Carlberg." I said, oh, okay. And I picked up the phone and I listened for a second. It was dead. I said, well, I said, they must not have waited long enough. They hung up. So I said, well, I've got to go get lunch. So I walked out of the place. I walked out just as the police were arriving, just casually walked across the street, walked uh, down to the bus stop, got a bus to where my house was, uh, called a friend of mine that was a member of the uh, uh, British Columbia Machine Gun Collectors Association, and had him come over and pick up some weapons I had at my house. I had an MG34 and a couple other things. And uh, dropped, I said I had to create a family emergency thing. And he gave me some money for the stuff. And I had him drop me off the, uh, what, I forget, Continental Bus Line or whatever they call it in Canada. It's like the Canadian Greyhound. And so I did the same thing. I jump hopped across Canada one city to another, buying a ticket at each city until I got to uh, Montreal. And even though I had ancestry from that part of the country, my French was not nearly adequate to get a job and work in Montreal. I stayed there about three weeks and turned around went to, back to Ottawa, found a room in a rooming house and a job in a bakery through the newspaper. By this time, I also changed my name. And... Uh, Richard Carpenter was the name I changed to. And uh, I was living in this house, when, and I, I was in contact with uh, Mauer. Mauer came up to visit me in Ottawa. This was on, uh, what was it, about Rosaka Street. Uh, uh, anyway, it was, it, was a, it was about a mile from the South, South African Embassy. I had some notion about leaving the country and going to South Africa. Couldn't quite bring myself to do it. I I love this continent too much. Got to uh, a point where Dennis Mauer actually came up and visited with me for a week. And during that period of time, he tried to get me to t go back to uh, the United States and finish the job on Martin Luther King. He just took the, whole, the earlier incident as a foobar, but they really wanted King dead. And offered me pretty much the same deal that uh, you're uh, James Earl Ray talking about. And personally, I honestly believe that James Earl Ray was an innocent guy who was just scared of going to trial because he, he probably would have been convicted and he probably would have been executed. Yeah. And so he made a deal that saved his life, but he wasn't he wasn't guilty. Without a doubt, Dennis Patrick Maurer and uh, Troy How Troy How Troy Houghton were the true killers of Martin Luther King. Later, uh, I was I was arrested at that. I, I just quit running after that. I took down it. Uh, I just stayed in that, uh, that house until one day I was surrounded by police. They knocked on the door and took me away and took me, finally ended up back in New York and spent three months in Watertown, New York, in jail. My orders had been, if you're arrested, don't talk to anybody. So I didn't. I didn't say a word to anybody. It was kind of an interesting experience until I got back to California and talked to an attorney. I had a previous attorney from a from a road rage incident that I had been involved in 
where I'd literally shot my way out of it. And it was, I probably would have beat it. However, with all this other stuff going on, it was hopeless. Yeah. And anyhow, the, uh, the, the message Mauer had given me is if you're arrested, you know, keep your mouth shut. Don't talk. And he implied to me that, you know, they, they knew where my, my, my mother and stepfather and, and, uh, young brother and stuff were living. My, my youngest brother still hadn't been born there, but I had, uh, stepbrothers and stepsisters. Right. He said, listen, you, you start talking and something's going to happen to them. I absolutely believed it to be true. And I kept my mouth shut for years. I probably could have saved myself uh, from going to San Quentin with, uh, this story of, I'd been able to talk about it, but I couldn't. And until now, all these people that they were able to hold over my head are dead. Dennis Maurer killed Troy Houghton. He shot him with a, a P-38 that I'd left with someone else that he got a hold of that had a silencer on it. And I know it because he made a comment to me one day, years later, about how he didn't think the silencer worked too good. Well, it was designed for subcalibre radiation, old, old maximum uh, silencer on a P-38. High-powered modern nine millimeter ammunition is going to make a lot of noise coming out of it. It's not going to silent in any case. It's just going to disrupt the noise. But Houghton's car is the only thing they found of him. They found bullet holes in it, which were, from what pictures I've seen, were clearly from a nine millimeter. And it was that gun that probably killed him. But Maurer is pretty good about hiding stuff. I mean, I, you know, the guy's a psychopathic. Uh, case. He's uh, fairly bright. He once bragged about having an IQ of, I don't know, 135 or something like that, which isn't overwhelming, but anyway. Pretty good. <laughs> he is he was queer as a $3 bill, it turned out. I mean, he admitted to it later. Uh, I don't know if he and Houghton had a love affair going or what, but that pretty much sums up the events. I ended up in San Quentin and had to stick to everything else that was going on. It, it was kind of crazy. Met a lot of interesting people there. Saw a lot of killing and a lot of mayhem that most people don't have to uh, see in this life. Yeah. Um, we we created well, a lot. A lot of white prisoners were being were being attacked by black prisoners at that time, and it's unfortunate because we all had the same oppressors, so to speak. The, the the California Department of Corrections kind of kept themselves safe by keeping uh, by well I should say by allowing strife between the races, and I don't say that with any hostility toward them so much because they never hurt me. But the bottom line is it was one dangerous place to be. We created a thing called the Aryan Brotherhood while I was there. They, the guys uh, decided they'd had enough. They were going to create something called uh, skinhead Nazis or something like that. I thought, look, there's a lot of people here that are neither white nor, I know I shouldn't say neither white, but neither Christian nor involved in this other stuff. And I said, you know, choose a name like Aryan Brotherhood. And sure enough, they did. And it stuck, and it's become one of the most dangerous uh, groups in, uh, in, in prison history. But it stopped a lot of the violence because they'd gang up on... Uh, uh, dangerous black prisoners and kill them. I mean, it's, it's just as simple as that. They, they stopped some of the attacks. I mean, I was really going to tear in the East Block, you know, the East Block, yeah, the East Block one day, and five black uh, prisoners threw an old white guy that was just harmless off the fifth tier just because he was white. 
And this is like this is one of the, you know, the final straws behind all this. Right. Today, things I think might be a little bit better in some places. The prisons in the United States are the most uh, uh, segregated parts of the country anymore, and it's probably just as well that it stayed that way. I've seen wardens try to get prisoners to eat together and to associate differently, but they don't want to. I just stick to the Jewish community and my own beginnings and don't worry too much about uh, what other people are doing. But the fact remains that, you know, safety is in identity, and this is where that all comes from. Years after I got out of San Quentin, I'd gone to, I'd gone to Hawaii, made a mistake, and went in the business with a fellow but raising marijuana while I was there and he got us busted and I, I actually is one of those rare cases where I got in front of a decent judge and we got I got out of it. The other fellow took off to Palmyra Island and he and his old lady killed some couple that they ran into there. They wrote a book about it. It's called uh, and the Sea Will Tell. That's Bugliosi's book. Buck Walker or actually uh what's his first name? Uh Buck is more of a, ah, uh, anyway, him and Stephanie Stearns. By this time, I'm in California. I, I moved back to California shortly after that. I'm married. I got a, I got a kid, another one on the way. And I'm, so I, my wife basically left me, and I moved back to California to be close to them. And was living in the San Francisco Bay Area in Alameda on Alameda Island for all, several years and just got wore out. I mean, my kids got dumped on me by my ex and so it was just, it was my turn to raise them fine and I, I just couldn't do that and work and everything else. So I moved to Idaho. Not in a million years thinking I'd be moving into an area where I moved into a house owned by a very dear friend of mine, uh, an old Indian judge named Fred Gabori, a really decent guy and he from the motion picture industry. And he rented the house to me at first. I found another wife, and he ended up selling the house to me. But I'd met this unfortunate reality. I'd moved into an area near Hayden Lake. I was in Post Falls. Richard Butler, who was involved with Dennis Bauer, with uh, Wesley Swift and all that, was in Hayden Lake doing his thing after Wesley Swift had died. He had basically uh, stole all the records and decided to become... Uh, backwoods preacher and prophet and had a following but he was involved with the, the same bunch that caused me to go to you know, San Quentin prison he was involved with Dennis Bauer right. uh, they were they, they'd never missed one of Swiss uh, meetings at uh, the Hollywood Women's Club on, just off Hollywood Boulevard and I, the, I gotta say it was a strange group because Swift as wild as he was, never did a violent thing in his life, I don't think. He was just a, a southern preacher hustler who was pretty well read. He, he addressed himself to a lot of strange uh, remnants of other groups. He and a guy named, uh, oh, geez, what was he? Gerald L.K. Smith had been kicked out of Louisiana after, uh, the, after uh, uh, Huey Long got killed. They were involved with Huey Long. Well, it happens that my mother's great great grandfather was the governor that took Louisiana out of the State of the Union. A family affiliation there that I never quite picked up on until I researched things later. Yeah. But they knew uh they knew this guy Swift, they got rid of him and he came to California, him and, and 
Gerald L. K. Smith. I never met Gerald L. K. Smith. Whatever he was, he was very private, and he put out publications and stuff like that. And I don't know if he and Swift got along or what. But Swift was up in uh, Lancaster, California, and Maurer and uh, and Richard Gint Butler. They were they were all involved in stuff there. As was uh, and uh, this earlier fellow I mentioned, uh, Clinton Wheat. He was very heavily involved with uh, Swift Church. Also very private about it. He was more involved with the, with the John Birch Society when it came to certain uh, uh, public things. But, you know, I found out some of this later. Yeah, you, you know, just a nice old guy with a bunch of St. Bernard dogs with a grudge against the system. And, he, and you know, after the Bay of Pigs, they saw John F. Kennedy as the enemy and wanted to see him dead. I've never seen such hate and vitriol to an American president as they did with him. They tried with uh, with Eisenhower with that with uh, the John Birch Society did with that and then they were calling it treason book. But when JFK comes along and they had real meat after the Bay of Pigs, they just went totally insane. Now Lee Har- Harvey Oswald proves himself as a member of the Minutemen. First of all, when uh, Maurer came to visit me in Canada. He revealed to me, hey, you know, this guy was a member of the Minutemen at the time this happened and so forth. His his activities down in Louisiana prove it. He was doing things that Minutemen organizations did as training, creating front organizations that sound because black propaganda that sound like something that the enemy's doing, but then doing things that are really embarrassing, really disruptive, and getting it all stirred up and started, and then just disappearing. Uh, there was a lot of that, and I, I don't think we have time today to go into every little detail. But this is the this is the crux of most of the story. I, I, because of my memory, I probably left out a few things, including a few people. But the two men that stole the dynamite ended up getting caught. They told the police where the dynamite was. They went to prison. Well, at least one of them did. One of them made a deal to get out of it if he didn't really reveal where the dynamite was. And uh, well, while uh, while Dennis Bauer was in Canada, one of the reasons he was coming there was to beg me to come back down to, to the United States and finish off uh, the, the original project to kill Martin Luther King. Which, at that point, I just told him, look, I'm not going anywhere to kill anybody. I think I saved Martin Luther King's life twice by what I did. Not that I could ever, you know, get any kind of uh, accolades for it. Didn't look for any. Uh, barely even talked to members of my family about what happened because honestly, people don't understand if it if it's too weird. And this is a little on the strange side. They don't want to believe it. But I will tell you this: there was a lot of hostility in California toward him coming there and stirring up the Negro population, a lot, and it got really, really intense. I know that uh, other things happened besides this, but Martin Luther King never came closer than when, if that dynamite had been planted. Unfortunately, a large part of the crowd would also have been uh, killed. And at that time, it would have been easy to get into the Hollywood Bowl and plant that, uh, uh, any number of explosive charges and set them off to go off, well, either by trip cord or by wire or by radio. <laughs> Excuse me, and uh, it had it had to not happen. 
<laughs> right. So let me ask you a question. <clears throat> now, you bet. You, you, you kind of came to my attention, you know, when you, when you left that review for, for uh, that Jeffrey Caulfield book, you know, General Walker and the Murder of R- President Kennedy. Right. And so I, I just wanted your opinion. Now, do you think that the General Walker and all these John Birch Society guys were behind it? Well, yeah, basically they were. Um, it was a huge conspiracy that couldn't be tied down. You know how they covered it? After the Kennedy assassination, a bumper sticker appeared. And it was a bumper sticker that I think the Birch Society may have financed the, the printing of. Because the Minutemen never had a lot of money, per se, to, to spread around. They, it was a... a terrorist organization operating on a shoestring and a few donations. But anyway, they printed a bumper sticker that said a commie killed Kennedy. And my God, you saw those everywhere. And it kept all the attention off of Lee Harvey Oswald's actual conduct and actual events in his life. Now, there's there's like six hours of of tapes of him being interviewed uh, by the Texas police and so forth that supposedly disappeared. Right. And I, I don't believe for a second that it disappeared. The only time he ever made a public statement was when, just before he got shot, when he said, I never killed anybody. And that statement's been run past voice stress analyzers and things. He didn't. He, he, he may have been up there in the, in, the, in the book repository with that junky old Italian uh, Carcano rifle. But that rifle did not kill Kennedy. And if if they were shooting... That Japanese bring gun, as, I, as I've stated, I believe they were, and it had been rechambered or rebarreled even. Um, it might explain that one bullet that came out uh, the, that they found uh, in the in the car that was the right caliber didn't have any trace of uh, of uh, of, um, of rifling on it. It's entirely possible it came out of that bring gun. Because it might uh, it, the bullet chain, it might have been, been able to fire them. It might not have been able to take the rifling. I'm just guessing here. And it would explain what happened. The car stopped when it heard machine gun fire. I have no doubt that's the reason the driver of the car stopped. He's, he's driving into the sound of machine gun fire. And <clears throat> this, this type of uh, machine gun, you can fire three or four rounds off of it. And they sound, it's very slow. So it's kind of a clackety action. Matter of fact, you can look it up on iTunes and listen to one being fired. <clears throat> and at that point, this, if it was indeed, as I suspect, hitting on the, on the grassy knoll, he just simply broke the machine gun down, and put it in a, in a satchel bag, and left. <clears throat> Casually walked away. Yeah. Uh, walked with the. But, but then I'm guessing here. I wasn't there. I didn't see this happening. All I know is. The, they had the gun because it's it's clear to me that Clinton Wheat gave it to him. Clinton Wheat got super paranoid after this all happened. I think I may have seen him once after the the JFK event, but I'm not absolutely certain. Anyway, he moved to Oregon. He's since disappeared up there, and I had no contact with him. He was, he was a very paranoid person when. Uh, he saw himself involved in something. And my inquiries to Mauer and others, whatever happened to Clinton? Oh, he moved out of town. 
were a little too casual. They knew what happened to him. They just weren't talking. And do you now, think uh, General Walker knew Swift? Uh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I'm sure he did. Uh, you know, I have to think about some of these things because I don't believe I ever met Walker. I, I just don't remember going to any of his events and stuff. But I do remember hearing him talked about a lot. Um, I know uh, Hall's name was bounced around. I'm pretty sure I met Hall. But it just, you know, we're talking about something that happened over 50 years ago. Some of these faces were not something I had any reason to remember. The only reason I remember Oswald, he's, uh, he's got some uh, unique kind of head shape. His, his hairline is, is rather distinctive. And as soon as I saw him on TV, I, I just literally, it was, uh, almost a panic mode thing. And then people started disappearing. People started getting shot and committing uh, uh, unusual suicides. I mean, I think I heard of like 140 people dying in all of this. I'm sure the FBI knew who did it. Uh, certainly the CIA knew what happened, but they weren't willing to panic the American people. The John Birch Society was fairly powerful at that time. I haven't heard about much about them in recent years. I don't even know if they still exist, but at that time they they were in the public face. They were they were pushing candidates who were doing one thing or another, and clearly were involved in this this whole uh, assassination plot thing. They they provided uh, money, weapons, and so forth to uh, to uh, Hemming and his bunch, and. Yeah, Hemming was famous for losing stuff, for getting caught with stuff, but not for doing much beyond that. Yeah. Uh, the story they gave me didn't rhyme to a whole lot. By the time I met him at, at Clinton Weech's house, uh, I think he had already been publicly exposed uh, pretty much as a failed expatriate, which he pretended to be. But I, I don't really know if he ever even got to Cuba or got beyond meeting anybody. I do know that, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, old Troy Houghton spoke fairly good Spanish. We'd go to Mexico and other places and try to get involved in uh, illegal activities down there before a lot of this happened and like to pretend to be a Cubano. This is why I think it was him and Maurer that uh, convinced, um, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Kill Kennedy to uh, be the dupe that he was because he one of the guys that he described as being a Cuban was without a doubt uh, 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 Troy Houghton with his hair dyed black or blacker right. anyway. And the other person met the description of Dennis Bauer. Now, Dennis Bauer lives, I think, or at least he was living in Spokane, Washington. Uh, I heard he moved to Thousand Oaks, California. You might be able to get an interview from him. He's crazy enough that he might talk to you. He's been hiding <laughs> behind being a preacher for years. But like I said, he's just an old homosexual that, that is really, really dangerously crazy. I don't know what it is about that. A lot of these, a lot of these guys tied to this... Uh tied to this thing are, are homosexual or have turned into to preachers like Thomas Beckham and uh, what's another guy? Uh, his name's escaping me right now, but there was another guy uh, who worked into uh, 
Lincoln Mercury dealership down there in Dallas. And uh, now he's a preacher in West Virginia somewhere. And, you know, a lot of these guys down in New Orleans were, you know, homosexual. And of course, General Walker and, uh, you know, a lot of that bunch. Ferry, Ferry was the one, one of the really yeah. notorious ones. And he and, he and Oswald were connected. He backed Oswald's uh, financial needs for some of the stuff he was doing down there. Kind of forgot that part. Dennis Maurer mentioned it. He was a weird dude. He really was. He, uh, but I never met him to my knowledge. If I did, it was uh, at some point when we were hauling uh, ammunition and stuff through New Orleans and you know, on down through Texas and whatnot. We we used to go to a lot of gun shows selling stuff, and this is uh, part of our route. And we'd pick up stuff selling. It was, it was, this is how the the uh, I think it was the CIA was using. Uh, uh, John Smith, uh, yeah, John, uh, not John, Robert A. Smith, to get munitions and stuff to expatriates without being covered. All the ammunition we got were in lots from uh, basic training units, so there was no record right. of where the ammunition came from. Well, all we had to do was strip it of the uh, the numbers of the stuff that were on it when we got it, and we'd take it to gun shows and sell it in bulk for. <laughs> Less price, for lower for less amounts than you can believe, and almost all that ammunition went to uh, radicals who knew we were coming, saw us coming, waited for us to come along to a gun show. We went to the Great Western Gun Show in Los Angeles many times, and we'd put out a number of tables. We sold everything from flintlock uh, rifle parts to uh, machine gun parts, and if if we knew you, we had machine guns in the truck. Right. Yeah, I know Guy Guy Bannister. You know, he was a he was a minute man. <clears throat> Bannister, yeah, yeah, yeah down there uh, in New Orleans, and you know, he, of course, he had yeah. ties, to, ties to Oswald, and was probably running Oswald, you know, with that little program. Very they, possibly. Another guy was a fellow up in was it Indiana or Illinois? I used to do business with him. Uh, he sold guns and uh, gun parts to the minute man, ran some trading programs and whatnot. Uh, yeah, I don't have a lot of notes out in front of me. I have to do a lot of stuff from memory here. So, uh, Lockley, Richard Lockley, and I don't know if he stole live or not. I have no idea. When I was in Canada, he sent me a copy of the uh, Special Forces Training Manual. We were going to reprint it up there and then ship it back down here because we couldn't get it shipped. We couldn't get it printed in the United States. Right. But. You know, the Vietnam War was going on hot and heavy, and a lot of stuff was coming back. Uh, a lot of people were coming back really pissed off that they weren't allowed to fight to win. Yeah. I mean, the general attitude at that time was, you know, we could have won the war with single-shot rifles. Just don't take prisoners, and it would have been over. Right. And <laughs> I say this now, and I look in my living room, and there's a rocking chair, and I look at where it was made, and it was made in Vietnam or shipped here. <laughs> How the times have changed, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, and like I say, you know, I, I can't even talk about this with my kids. I mean, they don't believe me. So that's fine. I, I'll share the information with anybody that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, tell me a little, little bit about... I died in December from pneumonia, so I don't know how long I'll be around. Hmm? Well, I was going to ask you, um, you know, tell, me, t tell everybody a little bit about the how, how I guess, big was the anti-communist sentiment back in the early 60s, like... Were, I mean, were people really, really worried about commies, you know, and communists? You know, it, yeah, it's the the whole Iron Curtain thing. Uh, the government cranked up this kind of fear. 
you could say that the government, government, uh, what's his name, um, the FBI, uh, Hoover? Hoover was strictly anti-communist. He, he, he put out, uh, flyers to people to use that showed Martin Luther King and communist meetings and stuff. <clears throat> I mean, I used to have one of them, but I've lost all that paperwork over the years. And, uh, the Cold War syndrome, you have to call it. People were either just mortified by it or couldn't care less. Right. You know, the, the people that you would find <laughs> voting for Hillary Clinton today would be in that category. They don't know what's going on. They don't care less. It's just for today. And, of course, the hippie movement started about, oh, I don't know, 1964 or 5 in there and got much stronger. And there was a lot of anti-war sentiment that started developing because the government wasn't fighting the win and the government stopped being believable in all this. Yeah. Which, you know, turned a lot of people from being, uh, sympathizers to the Minutemen viewpoint to literally being, if not on the other side, certainly, uh, disenchan- dis- disenfranchised. But I mean, these guys uh, thought you know, Kennedy was a genuine, communist sympathizer because he wouldn't he right wouldn't to the core to I've never seen such vitriol against a politician at, at his worst uh, Clinton never came close to getting that kind of anger uh, Obama, uh, Obama you know he's, he's, he's a black president there are people that don't like him you can find it all over the internet but nothing nothing approaches the attitude toward Kennedy they wanted Kennedy dead now I don't know how much that washed over to uh, to his brother Robert when he ran for office later. And when I was at San Quentin, I had the interesting experience of seeing uh, Sirhan Sirhan be taken in chains to visit uh, on the on the yard right. under guard and so forth. And a, a real small guy walks into a place with a nine shot or a six shot uh, twenty two caliber pistol and fires. Nine or was it nine or twelve shots and kills a man who probably would have been the next president of the United States. Yeah. I have no doubt that Robert Kennedy might have won, but the Kennedy's name has such defame. Look at his brother, I mean, the the Admiral of Chappaquiddick, is he's so yeah. well known for yeah. uh, for being able to stay in Congress and excuse me, the Senate so long, Senator Kennedy. I mean, right till he died, literally. I mean, this, this guy. He could do no wrong because of the sentiment that that followed that uh, the 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 earlier events. Right, should be a lesson to anybody. If you don't want, I mean, after Kennedy's assassination, all this all the bad stuff these people supposedly hated got passed. You know, the Civil Rights Act and everything else, which probably didn't have a great deal possibly being passed, was was passed in memoriam. Yeah, and. Yeah, it's that's kind of an interesting backfire to the whole thing from my point of perspective. Honestly, I don't care very much. I mean, I I live in a Negro neighborhood and it's some of the best neighbors I've ever, ever had. But then that's probably the Jew coming out of me. <laughs> Well, let me ask you about. Uh... <laughs> they never knew I was Jewish, by the way. <laughs> uh, the first time I met, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, Wesley Swift, and. Uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, Butler in Hollywood. I introduced myself as, as a Jew. I was wearing a mezuzah. And, I, 
And they spent they spent hours trying to convince me I wasn't. So I just let them convince me I wasn't that I was adopted or something. I wanted to sell my machine guns. Yeah. I had guns and bullets to sell. I'd, I'd be embarrassed to tell you how many Jews are in the arms of the ammunition business. It can be a good business. Yeah. They're good dealers. They're honest dealers. I was an honest dealer. You bought a machine gun for me, you got something at work. You know, yeah. To this day, I can tell you, machine. I mean, guns in this country are as common as cars. Machine guns are as common as motorcycles. I'm one of the few people in the country that ever got caught with any. Yeah. And I allowed that to happen when I thought I was dying of cancer 10 years, 11 years ago. It was something that I thought, well, I can you know, at least go out making a statement. Right. And then it went away. I got well. I just really screw, screwy stuff happens sometimes. But I went to a federal prison over it. I did my time. I got out. I, but while I was doing my time, they called me in and said, well, Mr. Gilbert, we've got interesting news for you. Some of it's good and some of it's bad. This is after I'd been down about four years. I said, well, what's the bad news first? Well, no, I'd say, what's the good news first? He said, well, you don't have cancer anymore. It just went away. I said, really? I said, what's the bad news? <laughs> he said, well, you got diabetes. Well, I got out of prison. I got. I went through all the parole or probation stuff the feds do. And never had a write-up during any of that time. I'm not, you know, I'm not really, a, I'll defend myself. I'm not really a mean, violent person. And I cured the diabetes with cinnamon, of all things. I read a little note someplace that cinnamon cured diabetes. Started taking capsules of it. And I'll be damned, the stuff went away. Much to the surprise of my uh, my doctors at the uh, VA. So you know, it's, it's been a, it's been an interesting run. <laughs> I just I don't have the wherewithal to write a book about it. I don't know if anybody would buy it or read it anyway. So I just give the information to people like uh, the well, like the book you read. You read. I, I I've I had several communications with him. Laid a few things out. I couldn't remember Anutsi's name when I spoke to him or, or communicated with him on email, but. You know, these people were all over Hollywood doing stuff. There was a strong liberal contingent in that part of the world. you got to understand, I worked in the motion picture industry. I know exactly what kind of people there are. There are people that are very, very liberal, and then there are people that just sound very, very liberal that get by because they don't let their true feelings be known. Yeah. But an awful lot of members of the John, of the John Birch Society were members of the LAPD, and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department deputies were, were had a lot of uh, these guys. Uh, very quiet, very low keyed. Uh, you know, I met some of them even while I was in jail. They'd come by and make sure I was doing all right and whatnot. And it was really crazy. Well, that was back, you know, intense, dangerous, but crazy. Yeah, you know? well, that was back when uh, <laughs> you know, all that Operation Chaos stuff was going on in L.A. too. You know, back then. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we would, you know, when, when I was part of our training exercises, we'd go to uh, to uh, meetings of uh, organizations like the Valley Peace Center and whatnot and be disrupted and so forth. Dennis Maurer, I think one of the reasons he killed, uh, Joe, even though the harboring a fuse was bad enough, but Dennis Maurer was responsible for using dynamite to blow up the uh, Valley Peace Center on two occasions and to put a bullet hole through their window on another and his one of his main crime partners and cohorts and all that was uh was Joseph Ray uh Curry. 
And I think Kerry, while he's a fugitive, he, was, he didn't make a very good fugitive from what I gather, was getting panicked. He wanted to turn himself in and so forth and just tell the cops everything and get out from under it. Maurer was not about to have himself exposed that way and go to prison. He was terrified of the idea of any of this coming out, and with good cause. And he just got more and more dangerous uh, the, the longer he was into it. Yeah. Like I was saying, there, there are people that think he and Houghton were the original uh, uh, Zodiac killers. He may still be. Right. I'm, I'm not at all above believing that because, uh, you know, he wasn't a gun aficionado. He was just more of a psychopath. Yeah. And uh, not somebody to trifle with because he had a lot of friends who were in a similar attitude. Yeah, well, anyway, any questions? Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you about another Hollywood guy you might know. Um, he ran the Allied International Detective Agency on Hollywood Boulevard, a guy by the name of Richard Hathcock. Did you ever run into him? Richard Hathcock. I know the name. It was Hathcock, in the, uh, says it was in the outpost building. Uh, Richard Hathcock. Why do I know that name? He might have been a part of the Wesley Swift thing. I'm not sure. Richard Hathcock. Didn't he write some books, too? Uh, he may have. I'm not sure. He, I know he was a detective. I, I think and he did. The reason I'm asking you is is because, uh, well, Jerry Patrick Hemming used to go there, as well as uh, Lauren Hall, who liked to be called Skip Hall, whose real name was Pasilio, which I understand is a Cuban name. And these guys had dropped off a gun there, a thirty caliber Johnson rifle. Equipped with a thirty pound. Yeah, there were a bunch of. Yeah, there were a bunch of those around. Uh, Winfield Arms brought the Johnson rifles in. They came from Inner Arm Co. Originally, and they weren't a lot of them, but there were parts you could. You know, the Johnson rifle was a legal rifle, but by changing certain parts, you could turn it into a light machine gun with a single stack magazine. As I recall, it came out the side of the gun. Uh, and the Marine Corps used a few of these in the South Pacific. It's was, it was a very effective, efficient rifle. Um, what's his name? The guy I mentioned earlier uh, in Indiana, Illinois, um, had he manufactured a bunch of the parts to make the change to turn the Johnson automatic rifle into a light machine gun. Lockley, Richard Lockley. And if you find any of his old... Uh, advertisements in the Arn Target Minuteman publication you'll see in there. And they were pretty cheap, you know. <laughs> it didn't cost a whole lot to turn this thing into into a machine gun. It worked right. fairly efficiently, but it was an awkward gun to use. It you know it wasn't as compact and convenient as say the F G forty two that the Germans built. But the magazine coming out of the side of the weapon was ingenious because it it gave the shooter a lower profile the Johnson firing the 30 out of six cartridge uh, had good range. They were easily scoped. I've never been a fan of them, but I've handled more than a few. Uh, and yes, I have talked. Have, you know, t- ten hours after this conversation, is, <laughs> all the connections will come because my poor old mind. I've got a good memory, but I just have to be patient with it and go through the alphabet, so to speak. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you a couple, I'm surprised, a, couple, uh, a couple more names of people that you might have Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Edgar Eugene Bradley. Yes. 
Um, I, I know the name, Edgar Eugene Bradley. Yeah, Garrison wanted to. Garrison wanted him bad out of California, and uh, Ronald Reagan uh, wouldn't, wouldn't extradite him. <laughs> so that's right. That was the guy they wouldn't extradite. Okay. Yeah, Eugene Bradley. What the hell was he involved in? Uh, I think he. Uh, I think he was associated with Clint Wheat in some some form or fashion out there. Um, of course, it might be right winger, and people people think that he may have been using an uh, alias and was actually taken to the station in, in Dallas for being in the Dow Text Building using the name Jim Braden. Braden is another name I've heard. Uh, Dallas Rockmore. Dallas Rockmore. Dallas Rockmore. Dallas. Yeah, Dallas Rockmore. Let's see. Ah. Uh. Dallas Rock Award. God. What is some guy named Dallas involved with Charles Manson? It's quite possible. That's, one, that's another name. Uh, I was to see if uh, Charles Manson had any uh, connections to any of these guys out there. I don't know. I've seen Charles Manson in person when he was at San Quentin the same way I saw uh, what's his name? Uh, um uh, yeah. The, the shooter of Robert Kennedy, Sir Han, Sir Han. Yeah. But I never, they, they, you couldn't talk to those people. I've settled with a few people that knew Manson really well. And the, all I could say is the guy was just really, really bright and very hypnotic in the way he got two people. But they never spoke ill of him for, you know, obvious reasons. You don't have convicts talking bad about each other right. if the other persons are. Dangerous person is liable to kill you over it. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, armed societies are polite societies, and <laughs> few societies are nearly as well armed as prison societies. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I mean, the first day I was in San Quentin, somebody was assassinated in their cell with a gun. <laughs> so, uh, needless to say, uh, it's best to just get along in a place like that, and that's their ways that you don't have to account for later by being stupid. People yeah. deal drugs and stuff, they're, they're just stupid in those places, because, or, especially the people that use them, because it's just a major, major problem. They say, if the government's smart, they say, you're a druggie here, have all the drugs you want. You know, just don't sell them to anybody and be done with it. Well, I think At I, least in the prison setting. Yeah, I think another, well, cool thing I guess you got to do in prison was see Johnny Cash, right? I was in the sh seventh row center of that show. Uh, it's one of two rock concerts or musical concerts I've ever been to in my life. I love the man till the day I die. He came. I was living in the West Block. Only the West and North Blocks got to go see the concert. And, I, I, you know, I, I want, I'm not a country western music fan, I'm more into classical music, but it was an opportunity to break up the monotony and uh I qualified to go so I did. And I used to be able to pick out my picture of that uh, that big picture that was on the uh, thirty three L P label. Uh has a picture looking beyond cash into the audience. Like I used to be able to find my picture in it, but I don't have that picture in, in a size I can see that clearly anymore. Right. But I heard the show. I love the man for coming. He came. He put on a show. It broke up a lot of the uh, tension there. He did a, a world of good, an infinite amount of good 
by coming to that prison and putting on that show for those guys. And I got to tell you, other people have done as much. They used to put on Christmas shows, and famous entertainers would come out and make appearances, put on little things. It did a wonder to settle things because otherwise it was all about you know living in a the most one of the most violent tea kettle or hot pots in the country. Yeah. The uh, just uh, one old black singer. I remember she came out. <laughs> Mama, uh, I'll think of her name and name, but she was famous. She was out of Oakland, and she she did she did a couple of numbers. And when she was done, she says, "Now, anybody who hears this, come on by my place." I can't remember the name of it. It was in Oakland. And have it, she said, have a glass of wine. She said, don't make it too. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. But it was dangerous to go to the Christmas show. I mean, people got stabbed in those Christmas shows sometimes. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I, I saw, oh, I saw between, I lost count after 50. <laughs> Outright killings and uh, mayhem and literally happening with almost within arm's length of me. People being killed right in front of you, just standing in a line because they didn't pay a debt or something. And, you know, deaths were a funny thing. Yeah. Man next door to me got killed over a pack of cigarettes because he jokingly told the guy who was a friend of his that, oh, fuck you, man, I'm not going to pay you. The next day he was dead and on his way to being buried because the other guy didn't understand. He was just making a joke. Right. That's a violent society. Yeah, and to take the take people and run them through that and turn them back onto the society we call America, I think is one of the great shames of our times. The British had the right idea. You get violent prisoners, you know, send them to Australia, convicted and unconvicted to the North America, I guess. Anyway, yeah, uh, <laughs> seemed to be the way it went. It got them out of their society. Now we house these people, spending more money than if most of them, most of the people in American prison. Had made as much money as it cost to keep them there on the streets, they wouldn't have ever gotten in trouble in the first place. You know, and of course, I'm not talking about speaking to the just outright gang type activities or druggies and stuff like that, but, you know, there are a lot of crimes that are just crimes of the moment because people become desperate and then they get, they're too stupid not to get caught. I didn't have to get caught after that event with you know, Martin Luther King. I simply stopped running because I was about to be drawn into a murder. I told Ken, I told him, Mauer, I'm not going back to the United States and kill anybody. And that pretty much put me on his bad side because, you know, it wasn't too, many, too much longer after that that I got picked up. Looking back on it, probably the FBI either followed him there because he was under constant supervision, or he was like I suspected several times that he was actually an FBI informant trying to play both sides against the middle to get out of trouble, which I don't know how well that worked for him. You'd have to ask him. Yeah. But he, yeah. Well, one, one more thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, you bet is look, and for everybody out there listening to this, if you don't think that Keith Gilbert is legit, I would invite you to head over to the Mary Farrell archives and put his name in there and you will see the countless, countless numbers of documents in FBI uh, documents that, that he is there. Trust me, and you are legit. And the one thing I wanted to ask you about, it kind of came up, um, was allegedly a guy by the name of Michael Wayne supposedly had your business card in his pocket outside of the RFK assassination. So I was wondering if you could yeah. speak on that a little bit. 
Well, you know, my car got around a lot. I went to a lot of gun shows. I I think that was the Western Buck card. It might have been the uh, Los Angeles Ordnance Depot card, I forget. I've seen that article you're talking about. I know the name. Um, say it again. Michael Wayne. Michael Wayne. Isn't Michael Wayne involved in a gun store in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, with a fellow named Harold Schlapia? It's quite possible. It's quite possible. And I think he, Michael Wayne, I, maybe, I may be getting mistakes. It may be, well, his they, name they, is uh, Wayne something else. They grabbed him, they grabbed him coming out of the pantry, I guess, and I, I don't think they arrested him on the spot, but they searched him and, and allegedly found, found your card. And then, I guess somewhere in, in the uh, LAPD files, it, it came up missing or so, something to that effect. Yeah. Well, the reason that happens is because a lot of people involved in police are involved in these organizations, and they just mysteriously let things happen. Probably harder to do today because it'd be scandal to do a computer and then it would just go into a safe. But back in that era, you know, documents disappeared. People got saved uh, from prosecution by what appeared to be just the clumsy handling of documents when, in fact, it was actually subterfuge to to cover the fact that the, uh, uh, shall we say, an undercover activist had gone in. Uh, right. the, Dr. Llewellyn is a good example. I met his son in Los Angeles County Jail. At that time, he was the lieutenant in the LAP uh, Sheriff's Department, and he came by and made sure I was okay and involved. Uh, they, they had me on what was called Little Death Row. And make sure I was doing okay and everything. His father was a doctor that he was involved in something. Anyway, uh, the guy that prints the uh, Soldier of Fortune magazine uh, turned him in, uh, Brown. Yeah, Robert Brown. Uh, Robert Brown, yeah, I kind of want to say David. Yeah, Robert Brown turned him into the feds because he was talking about killing Kennedy. This is how Robert Brown got to go to the uh, officer's candidate school and become an officer in special forces. When it was all over and done with, uh, Llewellyn, I guess he was charged by the feds, and he may or may not have done time. I don't recall. Dr. Llewellyn. I think I have met him, but I'm not certain. His son certainly knows me or knew me back then, so I'm pretty sure I must have. And it would have been at Swift's uh, so-called church thing. And, uh, you know, Brown was asked after the end, what can, the, the, what can our grateful government do for you? <laughs> I, I'm paraphrasing this, but this is how they do this. Right. And he says, well, he says, I'd like to go to officer's candidate school, become a United States Army officer, and... Uh, go to Special Forces School and go to Vietnam. He did all those things. He's been writing about them ever since. But his hands are not clean about getting there. I don't think he could have failed at any of those schools. Although I'm not, I'm not degrading him. The man's not a stupid person. He's intelligent enough to get through them all. It's just something that it's really hard to get into those schools and into those activities. And he didn't apparently have it going for him before that, but after the fact, he certainly did. Yeah. But uh, you know he was he was an informer who got paid off by the government. Yeah, a lot of those guys did. Yeah. Now there was one thing. I mean, at least I did a show about it a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking about you know 
Joseph Miltier and how he had a little bit of a, I guess you'd call it foreknowledge, you know, or he kind of knew how things were going to go, I guess you would say. And of course, an FBI informant, William Somerset, you know, was, uh, was informant on him the whole time. But he, he was a right winger too. You know, all these guys were, you know, ties to the KKK and, and, and this, that, and the other. And I know they, they used to get together at these, uh, Constitution Party conventions. And, you know, these guys yeah, would yeah. get to meet up and, did you ever have any dealings with uh, Joseph Miltier or maybe a guy named Hal Hendricks? Hal Hendricks. Well, the name Fortier, I mean, uh, sounds familiar. Hal Hendricks, Hendricks, Hendricks. Uh, three days from now, I'll remember something about <laughs> Hendricks. For right now, it doesn't come to mind. I mean, I don't want to mix something up for you. Yeah. But that's how it goes sometimes. You think, oh, wait a minute, he was talking about this guy. Uh, no, I just had a lot, a lot of people give me these questions meetings. to ask you. Um, yeah, what? Feel free. Because apparently you're hard to find. So. <laughs> you, well, you know what? Uh, sometimes that's my best safety. I hide in plain sight. There you go. Luckily, I figured and it out. Because uh, I. Let's just say there was a problem with your email address online where I found it, but I figured it out. And uh, a lot of researchers, a lot of guys, a lot of these guys writing books and everything, have stated that they've tried to find you and, and, and haven't had any luck. So. Well, you know, my, my email, I, I accidentally missed, stro hit a stroke once. Yeah. It's kdgilbert1147 at yahoo.com. Now, I, I hit a misstroke on one of my, uh, one of my communications this is some several years ago now, and it came out K D Gibbert something yeah yeah and it, it threw people off and I, I I tried to correct it but I wasn't able to re-enter the true information so you know you figured it out I did <laughs> I mean I I have gone on to Amazon many times made comments about books and stuff that are there I only buy these books and the thing looking for people that I knew. Yeah, and this is how I ended up with this Walker book. I still haven't read the whole thing. It's a long. It is a huge book, and my eyesight isn't what it used to be. But I, I'll go through the index looking for names of people I know to literally put the memories back together. A lot of these people were connected and knew each other, yeah. and a lot of them didn't. A lot of them were really connected through uh, people like Maurer, who was a considered a Minuteman organizer, and uh, let me call it something else. I wasn't really, honestly, that involved with the Minutemen. Beyond him, uh, yeah, I had, I had, I had a guerrilla warfare team that we used to have fun just, just going out doing stuff. You know, shooting machine guns is a hoot to do, and you know, oh, yeah. there's a lot of history there. And yeah, I'm being, I'm sort of a living history type of a guy. I like to go out and reenact some of the stuff. I was in the Civil War reenactment stuff years ago, and. You know, play with the old stuff. I mean, I even had a five-inch howitzer once that we used to go out and shoot. <laughs> that you know, years later, after I got out of San Quentin, I drug out and sold just to get rid of it. But you know, if I were to tell you my past, you probably wouldn't believe it. But I'm, I'm really the original hillbilly. I'm just a little country boy. Ended up in Beverly Hills. Uh, wanted to be a movie star, but didn't have the the parental guidance to get into the trade. I just had a mother that. Wanted to see my well-being and made sure we lived in a, in a good Jewish neighborhood all my life until I was old enough. But wouldn't, for the life of her, tell me very much about my past. I had to go look it all up myself. 
And it, it, to me, it was rather phenomenal to find some of this stuff. But, you know, I've had, it's been an honor and privilege to live in what I consider the most exciting and dangerous period in the history of the world. I mean, look at all the stuff that's going on today. Good God Almighty. What's happening in this country today is a thousand times more dangerous than anything going on during the Cold War. The Cold War, it, it was able to, you know, crank up a lot of dollars for the government and do a lot of things, but it was never, never, ever the threat that this invasion we're experiencing today from from uh, from the East is uh, is happening. I mean, we got a president that, good God, he won't even say Islam. He's he's, he's he doesn't want to disgrace his Muslim uh, be, uh, beginnings. Right. <laughs> and 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 he wants to claim to be a Christian all this time, but all the time he's doing stuff that undercuts the country. I'm I'm a little bit you know I'm scared for my country. I am not I'm too old to do anything about it, except be concerned. But you know I don't I don't keep my mouth shut about it. I just I'm just not a not a, a, a Obama kind of guy. Yeah. And to be honest with you. When he first started out, I actually hoped that he would do well. I hope that, well, you know, maybe there'll be some healing here. Maybe something good will come out of it. But I haven't seen it happen. I, I, I see people buying more guns and people, people just scared to friggin' death about the state that he's put our country into. And, you know, there's an awful lot to compare to the Kennedy era. But Kennedy was a healthier element by far than what we have now. Yeah, I think so. Am I making sense? You are. She's making perfect sense. <laughs> Probably offending some of your uh, listeners. I don't. I really don't care. I'm not a PC kind of guy. Me either. But I'm, I'm a realist. You know, some things just don't work. No. The uh, for all the for all the heartfelt uh, sincerity involved in it, the Minutemen just didn't work. The modern Minutemen, the one that went down to the border, made a whole lot more sense than what we were doing. Although. You know, we did create some interesting uh, characters, drew an awful lot of strange people out of the woodwork. But then came the voice stress analyzer and voice detectors, and people started finding out about each other, and uh, things change. Yep. Yeah. I, there, there was a fascinating book written uh, called The Assassination Tapes, and it used one of those voice stress analyzers to analyze a lot of the... The players, I guess, and even Oswald, and and like you said, you know, it analyzed his his, uh, his voice, and it, apparently he was, you know, telling the truth when he said, you know, I didn't shoot anybody, you know. I didn't shoot. He didn't. I didn't kill anybody. Was yeah. his exact words. They were some of his last words. Yeah. And he didn't. He was not the shooter in that. Uh, I'm not even sure that Parkino had, uh they found up on the uh, book building had been uh, fired at that occasion. You know, well, you're a gun guy. It's one right? of the junkiest guns ever made, huh? I said, well, you're, you're you're a gun guy, and apparently, if 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 a rifle has what what would technically be called a rusty barrel, would that affect anything at all, as far as shooting? Most probably. I've seen rusty barrels shoot true. They shouldn't. They have every reason not to. Right. They probably won't for very long. But if if a you know, and where's the rust? If it's the rust is in the rifling, it it's gonna it's gonna affect the bullets. As I said before, I don't think that rifle killed uh, Kennedy, and they have they've they've offered no uh, 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 what do they call it uh, forensic proof that it did. Right. 
And I'm, and why did the car stop? Why did that driver of the car that Kennedy was in stop? He thought he was driving in the machine gun fires while he stopped. They've never said that, but I've said it. That's what I'd do. I'd stop and try to back up and get out of it if I could. There's no way to back up. And by that time, he'd already been hit. Yeah. And the car had already been hit. And, you know, I, I sympathize with the FBI and their problem with this. I, I've never had a bad experience with them, oddly enough. I don't have a bad word to say about them. The FBI agent in New York City actually uh, came to my, my mother's assistance once during World War II, and she and her friend Dottie went to uh, Brooklyn to try to make some uh, money to go send back on the farm. Things were still pretty tight from the Depression then. I was just a little kid. And uh, the story's been in the family forever, and I've always been respectful to those guys. I, I think they got one of the toughest jobs in the country. I also think they tend to be, you know, a little, uh, well, as, as an old FBI agent once told me, we were talking about J. Edgar Hoover, and he, he described him as a, as a benevolent dictator. And he said, yeah, the guy was crazy. He's uh, probably queers a $3 bill, just like everybody said. But he, uh, he actually cared about the country and saw himself as a great benefactor and, and shall I say, a savior for the country, which I'm willing to accept. But he also stirred up a lot of shit with some of that uh, stuff he gave the Bennett men. I'm, are fed to them, I should say, because there are pictures of Martin Luther King taken by the FBI with him at some kind of communist uh, meeting, and they're not—they're not fixed pictures. He was there. He would—he would speak to any group that was sympathetic toward his cause. And at that time, the Communist Party of America was very sympathetic toward his cause because they saw it as a source of followers. Right. And I gather still do from Bernie. <laughs> but they're, you know, they're not about anything that's very intelligent. They're, you know, it's more about using people for cannon fodder to get to where they wanted to go than anything else. I, yeah, I think part of the I problem. I can go into details. But not, huh? I was going to say, I think part of the problem with the FBI, you know, concerning all this stuff is, is I think they, you know, they, of course, you know Hoover did not want the FBI to ever be embarrassed about anything, or, or you know. Exactly. And exactly. I think they dropped the ball with with Oswald, and we're we're very concerned about you know what the potential potentially true investigation would turn up, you know, because this guy, you know, he had defected to Russia, he had come back with a Russian wife, you know, they were supposedly on him in Dallas, but they weren't watching him, and they were supposedly opening his yeah. mail in New Orleans, and, and you know, he's ordered the a gun. The first organization he, yeah, the first organization he joined when he got back from Russia was the Minutemen in Missouri. That was the first, he looked for a per, uh, patriotic organization, that's the first one he joined, and that's right out of the mouth of the, uh, of the beast, so to speak. Right. And er everything he did from that point on was basically directed by either Minutemen or Minutemen operatives who were involved in all these other organizations. Because, you know, we're not talking about an organization with a lot of funds. It's kind of like Bernie's uh, organization. You, know, you don't have anybody with a lot of funds back, and you've got a lot of people with a dollar or two. Well, you know, they were frugal how they spent their money, and they used it basically to undermine things that they thought would save the country or... God only knows what else some of them were thinking. Yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, Wesley Swift was an opportunist who simply allowed things to happen because it, it, it brought people into his congregations. And, which, you know, it was pretty wild. I'd, I'd show up with a trunk load of uh, hand grenades and machine guns and stuff. 
pull into the back parking lot of the Hollywood Women's Club, and certain people would come out and buy stuff from me at really decent prices. I mean, I'm selling you know, live United States government issue hand grenades for five bucks a piece. Yeah. Couldn't get rid of them fast enough. Just wanted to get rid of them. Didn't think there was anything wrong at that time. Anybody having live hand grenades? They were dead old. Right. And I'm not so sure today that they there's anything wrong with it. The trouble is most people don't know how to store that stuff. And you know, like uh, with all things chemical, some of those things can uh, corrode and go bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's never a good thing. I mean, it, it it didn't bother me that I was doing anything that was particularly unlawful. I thought I was saving our country. In effect, by by conducting myself in this way, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Butler was involved while I was going to trial with me losing my first attorney, who was a really decent guy who became a judge in California later. And he made me. They they basically said, "Look, well, but we'll pay your attorney fees, but you got to fire this guy who's a Jew and let us put in." Uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Bertrand Copperay. And so I, I put up with it because I, literally I was under threat. Then they printed all kinds of stuff that simply wasn't true. Things that, well, the FBI questioned Gilbert for, I don't know, two or three weeks solid, blah, blah, blah. They really beat brutal so forth. The FBI never questioned me once beyond me saying, not, basically nothing. They wanted to talk to me, but I wouldn't talk to anybody and, uh, didn't dare talk to them later. But they got, basically got me convicted and if I'd been able to come out with the truth back then I have no doubt that I would not have been convicted of any of the charges that sent me to San Quentin. I wouldn't be here talking to you right now and I'd probably be running a old mom and pop's gun store in in Montana someplace or something yeah. selling uh, black powder guns or you know something else I love doing or just going to Indian powwows and you know putting on some feathers <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or being an actor, you know. I like to say, you know, John Wayne was my was my sir. I guess he was for a lot of uh, fatherless uh, children. I wasn't fatherless, but I didn't have my father. No, he was like a stepfather for all of us. We looked up to him. We loved him, and I do to this day enjoy watching his work. I had the pleasure of working with him a couple of times while I was at Western Costume Company, and. You know, I'd probably be doing something like that, like making movies or something. Instead, I'm sitting here retired, talking to you. My my son and uh, daughter-in-law, who came back from the Army, have been living with me there for the process of buying their own home. And uh, basically enjoying Seattle, which I love much more than Los Angeles. Oh, <laughs> without, a, without a doubt, a question of a doubt. I love the people here. I love the city. I love it all. L.A. is a is a, is a stewpot of hate and, and, and temperament. I mean, people. I I, I drove to L.A. Uh, through L.A. the last time I came back from T.I. prison when I got sent up for machine guns ten years ago, eleven years ago. And all I could think of was, my God, if I was driving these streets, I'd want to have a gun with me. Yeah. It just isn't a safe place to go and be without protection. Right. But. It's it's the it's the it's the gut feeling you have about being a planet place. To their credit, they did clean up the smog in the air for some 
good purpose. I mean, you know, yeah, everything, say everything good moved to China place. so that they make everything over there. Everything moved to China <laughs> and the smog went away. Honest to me, let the Chinese have it. I really don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a global warming kind of guy. I think there's a lot of crookedness going on there, starting with Al Gore and his bunch. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, geez, come on. You know, as if the, the, the epitome of arrogance is man thinking he can, can, can be in control of what the weather on this planet does. We're just visitors here. We're not controlling anything. Yeah, a couple, a couple more <sighs> thousand years, it'll be another ice age, and, and you know, everybody will freak oh, out. Well, it could happen. You know, a few years ago, we were expecting another ice age, not another heat wave. And, I mean, <laughs> it just gets stranger and stranger. I mean, look at the weather today. I've never seen such uh, rain. I mean, I saw a major flood when I was a kid living in an orphanage in Houston back in the early, early 50s that really covered the town, but it wasn't nearly as bad, I don't think, as this thing has happened lately. I mean, we had a lot of rain come down, and the Buffalo Bio flooded and whatnot, and it came you know right up to the houses, but it wasn't wiping out the whole neighborhoods. Yeah. Now we got Houston's underwater. What uh, if it froze crazy. all of a sudden? <laughs> Uh, oh crazy. well, it is crazy, you know. But I, I just, you know, I live with it. I, I love life. Life is good, you know. I, I find, I find my experiences to have been, if not enlightening, certainly exciting. There's some that I wouldn't care to repeat, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't give them up for their life of me. I don't like having gone to San Quentin, but you know what? I met some strong, hard people there. They were really interesting. I, some of them were very intelligent. I wouldn't have met otherwise. Some of them made terrible mistakes after they got out, and some of them didn't. Uh, some of them were really good brothers as far as uh, personal safety was concerned. And some of them were people that, you know, you're okay to know there, but I just got, I don't want to know them on the street because they were super dangerous, uh, crazy people. Because prison makes you that way. I don't care how bad you are. When you go to prison, it's going to make you worse. The right. San Quentin prison, you, the cells are so small, and they got two men to a cell, you, you'd be shocked at the remarkable ability that people survive that. But, you know, still not the worst prison I ever saw. The worst prison I ever saw was one in Spain, in Barcelona, where things went into extremes after the uh, after the Franco uh, uh uh, defeat of the uh, Republican government there, or the, uh, the Republican Party in the Spanish Revolution. They, they had harsh conditions that we've never matched the meanness that, that went on there. So, I, you know, I look at that and I, I knew about that before I went to San Quentin. And at San Quentin, I just never could qualify to go to camp. <laughs> but they turned me loose and I always thought that was kind of an escape. They when the day I walked out that front door, it, it was only because I was no longer a special interest, departmental interest, departmental study, a special study case. Martin Luther King had been assassinated by someone else. I could not be considered a threat to him. So I was done. I was guilty of uh, illegal storage of explosives and and, uh, and, a, and a gunfight on Hollywood Boulevard, no, it was Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Uh was a guy who just happened to be black, but was driving crazy and wanted to start a fight. And when he stepped out, I stepped out. 
Shouldn't have done it. Should have just kept going. But should have just another place to lose from, from the looks of things. He uh, he had a club and I had a gun. He didn't know I had a gun. <laughs> but you know, I, I also had a truckload of ammunition. I was driving an old International Harvester uh, Scout, full, just loaded to the gills with ammunition in the back. I was taken for a delivery. And I thought he was trying to interfere, literally interfere with me in that delivery. Right. But I never, it never came out. Warren Stewart. And then the last time I saw Warren Stewart was on the big yard in San Quentin. And he disappeared. I think he got killed or something. But I didn't had nothing to do with it. It was after my, you know, he, he, I was I was well into being there before this happened. But he got arrested for drugs or something. I think. Yeah. Anyway, I saw him once. He disappeared, and that was the end of it. Inquiries didn't turn up anything. Yeah, contrary to what people think, the prisoners and the guards get along pretty good in a lot of ways because there's so much in common. You know, uh, just based, but for the uniforms, you could you could switch positions with most prisoners and most uh, so-called correctional officers. You wouldn't find ten cents worth of difference. But right, well, that's how one got works. caught and <laughs> one didn't, huh? Yeah, I was gonna say that's how a lot of the contraband gets into prison is these guys. So. Well, of course it is. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made in that. Uh, and it's not hard. I mean, you know, but, you know, you got people that, they're not going to give up their lifestyle just because they got caught and sent to prison. And, you know, I could, I could easily say, well, I've got, I've got a family that's in prison. When I went back to prison last time, I had people coming up to me that knew me from other occasions. I saw old friends. I had a cell partner at, uh, at, at, uh, uh, FCI, uh, Sheridan that I knew in San Quentin. And he, he was an old drug manufacturer that the, 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 the black folks in Oakland used to kidnap him, take him, make him manufacture drugs for him, for them and then turn him loose because he knew what he was doing. Right. And he got wrapped up in something, got a 27 year sentence. He, he left when I was there to, to go to uh, Portland and find a place to die because he got tipsy and wouldn't take treatment for it. Uh, I'll tell you his name if I think of it. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I remember the conversations from him at uh, San Quentin, and here I run into him there. And there were other people. There were people that read the newspapers and then see my name, and they'd come over and you know, make their acquaintance with me. And, you know, it, it wasn't a bad life. They didn't feed us what badly. Uh, the, the guards do not beat and mistreat prisoners. They end up in federal court when they do. And I learned a little bit about the law while I was doing all this. So I probably filed more civil rights lawsuits than most people will ever talk to. Not for myself, but for any prisoner that wanted one. Right. And for this, I was not allowed to work in the law library because they didn't want me getting any better than I was. <laughs> Doing stuff like that was fun. Not being with my family and stuff like that was not fun. But I'm a people kind of guy. I am to like people. I enjoy all kinds of people. And recognize the strengths and weaknesses of the people and human beings in our society. And there's some really dangerous folks out there. There's some genuinely kind, good people. <sighs> Sadly, most of them are not in our political <laughs> no. system, but no. it does happen. You got to really want to, 
you got to really want to put up with a lot to be a politician in this country. That's all I can say. Yeah, I think when, once you reach the level of, you know, when you're running for president, you owe so many people so many things. And at that point, you just, you're bought and paid for. You know what I mean? But, you know, by then. Well, and that's why Trump is getting such a following. He's, he's financing his own. Never happened before in my lifetime. I think he's making a huge mistake, though, in not figuring out a way for people to give small donations to something. People like to feel like they're participating. Right. If they send $3 to Bernie, they're going to vote for Bernie. Yeah. Because they feel like they it's only $3, but they feel like they've committed themselves to something. People that haven't sent that dollar or that $3 or even more to a candidate don't feel like they have any tie to him that this would generate. He's got plenty of other followers, truly, but... Uh, I think he's lost a lot of people by not being able to use this facet. Maybe he gained a lot more by doing it himself with his own money. I don't know. But I've run for public office uh, three times, and I can tell you, I've never had so much fun in all my life. But you can't expect to win. you got to run because you want to run. And most of the most fun I ever had was running for sheriff in Kootenai County. I know. Really pissed a lot of people off. Because, you know, what I had to say didn't match with what they wanted to hear, perhaps. But I still got 23 and a 30% of the vote going into the primary. And that caused a few jaws to drop. Yeah. But the reason I ran for the office over there was to make a liar out of Richard Butler. Because he was always telling his followers, oh, none of us can ever run for public office, blah, blah, blah. Wanting to keep them and their money closer to him. Yeah. And all I wanted to do was embarrass him to death and bring him down. And effectively did eventually, but it just didn't happen quite the way I'd planned it. But it put so much heat on him that, uh, well, for instance, the official running nigger targets all started at his compound, made a huge loop through Kootenai County, being glued to fence posts and telephone poles and mailboxes. And the Drextrum that it started the next day was just incredible. It was so outrageous. He had to sit there and answer the phone and answer to it and disclaim it and deny it. And, you know. But the truth of the matter is, one of his followers was with me driving the truck, and I wouldn't let him participate. I insisted on doing it all myself so that they wouldn't actually be participating. Right. And, you know, they figured me out after a while and told me, <laughs> you know, don't come back. I was never a member of his organization, but I, did, but I took his uniform under advice of uh, counsel, shall we say, and started making speeches and giving stuff and claiming a a, uh, uh, an organization that would, uh, a uh, uh, competing organization. And there was an organization of one, me. They just <laughs> made the stuff up and, uh, cranked out, uh, news interviews and stories and kind of winged it, so to speak. And I did it all based on conversations I had with old actors in Hollywood that, that were actually, in fact, uh, method actors. <clears throat> and the only, the only advice that he ever gave me is say, he says, you know, you got to do it this way, but don't get carried away by the part. And it was really hard not to get carried away by the part sometimes. Yeah, sounds sounds like what uh sounds like what Oswald was doing down there in New Orleans with his Fair Play for Cuba committee. <laughs> you know. Well, no, that was actually actually a Minuteman activity. You know, you start that kind of stuff up for the opposition, and uh, yeah, but it was just him. Just he was doing it from the communist viewpoint. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's actually about three involved with what he was doing, but Ferry was financing him doing it. One of the buildings he picketed was was one of Ferry's buildings, 
where I think he had a, an office that Perry owned the building to where that office was. Yes, this is uh, not something there, yeah. I knew at the time. Yeah, this, yeah, this not and it was it, nobody ever put this together for the public because honestly, I think the FBI was afraid of the public knowing. Mm -hmm. There was always rumor of the vast right wing conspiracy. Well, <laughs> maybe it was a vast right wing uh, conspiracy. It just wasn't definable enough to put uh, uh, to put a, a knife point on, shall we say? Yeah. Had people known that the Minutemen killed Kennedy, oh shit, I have no idea what would have happened. Yeah, well, former generals and things of this nature, you know. And former generals. Walker was was uh, certainly dangerous. I never got close to Walker. You know, as I said, I think I've met him once, or maybe twice, but it was like as part of some group thing. I would go to these meetings. I didn't keep a record of them, but. They were sponsored by the John Birch Society and, you know, folks like that. Oh, yeah. Well, Just a second. I'm being, I'm being asked, hang on. What? No, I've eaten. Thank you. And, um, you know, the, the John Birch Society was involved in a lot of little side issue things that weren't officially approved by the John Birch Society. But they were also seen as a source for recruiting for, like, the men and men and whatnot. Because they had a public draw. They had a public persona. And, you know, sometimes they do doth, doth protest too much. So excited when they'd be objecting to some of these other things that people were doing. Because sometimes the person protesting too much was involved in the very thing that they were doing. I think that is true. Is this making sense to you? Yes, very much. Okay. Yeah, well, so I, I I think of myself sometimes as kind of a missing link to all this. I I remember a lot of it. <clears throat> I have to remind myself of some of it. But you know, like like and, uh, it's not very it's not very often that you run across somebody who you know who was you know not not necessarily involved in in in, the, in all this, but you know on the fringes and knew some of the people and and knew some of what was going on, and uh, you know you're a living witness, you know. Most of these people are so paranoid, they don't want to talk about it or remember it, even with friends. I mean, like I said, try, you know, get in touch with Dennis Bauer. He runs around pretending to be parts of uh, uh, Methodist uh, congregations and stuff. <laughs> I think they run him off after they figure out who he is and what he's about. But that's, that's, his, that's his only cover, is just pretending to be a student preacher, a preacher, whatever. And uh, didn't want to talk about things that he was involved in because there is no statute of limitations on murder. Right. I knew Kerry. I liked Kerry, even though he was crazy as a shit house rat about some things. As a matter of fact, when he walked in the into the Los Angeles Ordnance Depot, and we had just heard the mess, the news that uh, Kennedy had been shot, uh, and I mentioned it, his first words were "bitching man," blah blah blah, something else. You know, uh, it was just the attitude and. You know, I didn't. I sold everything we had in the store except a pair of Civil War pants. That day, Damn. we sold out. I couldn't get stuff in fast enough. People were in a panic. People were buying machine guns that never had an interest in them before. Uh, M14 rifles were were the uh, standard of perfection. To quote an old chicken uh, seller's thing, that. Uh, People wanted it at that time because they knew they were good, reliable rifles. We thought the the, world, the sky was going to fall. Yeah. I and at that. that point, 
at that point that this first started, I had no idea. Then, uh, you know, is the, the next day or that might have been that night, the next day or there two later, uh, I'm watching TV at home with my wife. And we show this Oswald guy. And that's when, I'm, like I say, <laughs> my asshole almost fell out because I'm watching this guy and I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's the guy at Clinton Weeks. And then, of course, the question came, where's the other guy? And, you know, <laughs> things like this don't happen very many times in life. I am so grateful I didn't sell them anything and refuse to do business with them. Yes. Only because I didn't like Cubans losing American weapons. I thought the weapons were all going to be more useful right here in the United States than they'd ever be by, in the hands of uh, p- proven failures. And, you know, you basically, a lot of this, this, this hostility and everything is based on the Bay of Pigs. There's no doubt in my mind that people considered uh, Kennedy a traitor to the United States and everything we believed in after the Bay of Pigs because they wanted him to go in there and save the Cuban people from Castro. I can't say that I don't that I particularly disagreed with him. Looking back on it, well, it probably wasn't worth starting a nuclear war over. Right. But you know, I'm sure there are plenty of Cubans who would tell you today that Castro is not such a good deal after all. No. The, the the what he did to Cuba was really pretty drastic. On the other hand, it's not my problem. You know? Exactly. <laughs> I'm not going there. What, what what did you think when you saw um or, or saw I don't know if you saw it but when you heard uh, that Oswald was shot there a couple of days later and killed? I wasn't surprised. I didn't for a minute believe it wasn't set up. Jack Ruby. I don't know, never met him, anything like that. But he was a well-known figure to a lot of these people we've been talking about. Uh, I don't know if he knew he was dying of cancer or whatever it was that killed him at that time or not. But I think he sacrificed himself by doing that in order to stop or save some other situation. I haven't got a clue in the world what that would be. Why else would he do it? He was not that big a Kennedy fan, right? Yeah, I know. I know in the Caulfield book, there's a letter that General Walker wrote to somebody, and he was saying that, that Jack Ruby's the only thing left from keeping the heat off of the right wing, and the only way he's going to leave that hospital is in a box. So, and, and sure enough, that's the that's the only that's way. That's how happened. he left. Yeah. After a doctor gave him some medical injections. I forget what it was for, but slowly it was a, he was he might have been injected with something. But I hope I hope that's not just rumor because my understanding is that he was receiving medical treatment from an outside doctor or something like that, and that some cells or something else might have been injected into his body. That that that's just a supposition on my part. But the rest of the story about Jack Ruby. It doesn't make a lick of sense. And it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if someone were to come up with evidence that J. Edgar Hoover told him, Look here, Jack Ruby, you got a choice. You can either go do this or you spend the rest of your life in federal penitentiary for doing that. And of course they didn't have any racketeering statutes in those days. But it was so easy to convict. Oh, you you could you know, you could convict a telephone book in yeah. federal court. Yeah. So well, and with all the heat 
I was going to say, there's, there's also allegations in the book as well that there was a guy who used to work for General Walker, a guy by the name of William Duff, who said that Ru- Jack Ruby would come and meet with General Walker, you know, a couple of times a month for many months prior to the assassination. So, who, you know, who the hell I, knows what was going on there? I know the name Duff. I can't remember from what far, but... You know, there's just a lot of names swirling around in my head of people that, uh, not people I've read about, because I, I rarely read any of these books other than looking up names. But the name Duff sounds a little bit familiar. Uh, yeah, I think he was an gosh, Irish God, guy, God. former British SAS. Might have been. Ah, uh, there was something about some former British SAS guy. Uh, not one of my guys, though. Not one of my team. Yeah, he was tied my, to all my guys these were Texas all, right wingers. Huh? He was tied to all these yeah, Texas right wingers. Yeah, it does. It does ring a bell. I may have sold guns to him on one of our trips. That's entirely possible. Yeah, we'd hit all the gun shows going across country, and we had good stuff. You know, we knew, we had good connections, and you know, gun gun dealers are some of the most patriotic people in America. Yeah. Well, it's see. always been so. Huh? I was just going to say, um, you know, I, the reason I wanted to talk to you is because, you you, you know, you've led a fascinating life and and, and people want to know more. So I, I, I hope you hopefully, you know, you got to tell your story a little bit today and, and, and uh, you know, just get it out there. And thank God you're still around to tell it, you know, and, and I thoroughly have enjoyed talking to you, Keith. Well, it's been a pleasure. My, my my closing line would only be no shame, no regret, and certainly no apologies. Life is good. You fight or you die. God bless all of you. Beautiful words to live by. Beautiful words. And, and Keith, you hang on the line for me. I'm going to talk this out, okay? Okay. All right. For everybody out there, head over to tlgpodcast.com. I'm going to put up some cool pictures for you to check out that Keith has been kind enough to, to supply me with. Uh, you know, we talked about the Japanese gun. I got a picture of that. Um, some pictures of Keith. and uh, We're going to put up some documents and, and, and all kinds of other stuff. So make sure you head over to tpodcast.com to check them out. And once again, thank you to Keith Gilbert for coming on the show. Everybody, that's it. There's some bitches in the can beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. Peace. The train keeps rolling all down the San Antonio. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. There's rich folks eating in a fancy dining car They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars Well, I know I had it coming I know I can't be free But those people keep a moving And that's what tortures me Hey, one more time!
right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.